Hi everyone, Rod here, just giving a short introduction to this episode of the podcast. This ended up being two uh, talks in one, really. The first uh, 15 minutes and 30 seconds is a discussion of John 4, 1 to 29, um, the story of Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman at the well. And then after that, from about you know, 1535 onwards, it's a, a discussion of... Um, I guess what we are really focusing on this in this series, and that's a different way of understanding Jesus. So you can either listen to both, or if you if you really just want to track along with the uh, the discussion on understandings of Jesus, then you might want to skip ahead to the fifteen minute mark. Oh, actually, if I add this introduction, it's going to be. A little bit more like the 16 and a half minute mark. <laughs> Apologies. The the other thing to say is that this uh, I cut off some of the parts at the beginning of the recording, so we just jump straight into the reading of the passage by Mark. So that's uh, yeah. If you want to read along or you want to know what we're we're looking at, it's John 4, 1 to 29. Okay, so I notice I've done about a minute 40. For our introduction, a minute fifty. So you, yeah, you'll need to jump forward to about the uh, the seventeen minute mark or so to to listen to the second part of the talk. All right, I won't go on. Otherwise, I have to revise that again. Enjoy. Bye. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard Jesus is making and baptizing more disciples than John, although it was not Jesus himself, but his disciples who baptized. He left Judea and started back to Galilee, but he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask me, a woman of Samaria? Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have no bucket and the well's deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestors, Leah and Rachel and Jacob, who gave us this well? and with their descendants uh, and flocks drank from it. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks this water will will be thirsty again, but those who drink of the water that I give will never be thirsty. The water that I give um, will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep on coming here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come back. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you've had five husbands and the one you're with now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I see you are a prophet. 
Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you say the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship Abba God neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship Abba God in spirit and in truth. For it is such worshippers that Abba God seeks. God is spirit, and those who worship God must worship him in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah, the anointed one, is coming and will proclaim all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am the Messiah. Just then his disciples came. They were astonished that he was having a private conversation with the woman, but no one said, what do you want of him? Or why are you speaking with her? Then the woman left her water jar and went back to the city. She said to the people, come and see someone who told me everything I've ever done. Could this be the Messiah? Thanks, Mark. So any, any comments or reflections, things that you noticed listening to that for the second time, um, questions that you have, things that you wonder? She doesn't come across as the sharpest tool in the shed, does she? Uh, and the way that Jesus actually has to spell it out for her to, to kind of get it across. And the other thing is, I don't think Jesus still got his drink of water because she ran off and leaving the, left the pot there. I was interested in why did Jesus tell her to go get her husband when he knew already that she didn't have one? Like... Seems like entrapment. <laughs> yeah, it's a little passive-aggressive, Jesus. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah, just an interesting way of... And then, like, the, and interesting that she trusted him enough to be honest about that instead of, like, lying and saying, oh, no, my husband's busy today. And then, yeah, just it, the whole exchange is very... Straight, complex mm. feels. Yeah, I mean, certainly, if you when you read John, you see so many really, really complex <laughs> um, interactions between Jesus and various people that um, are scripted in very, very complex ways that we just don't see in the other gospels. And she's quite feisty as well, mm. like. She says, you know, why are you talking to me? You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. Um, yeah, really interesting. Mm. It's, it's, it's always interesting the way we interpret or impose tone on stories in the Bible um, and the way what Stuart reads as someone that's not that sharp, um, other people would read as someone, a woman who's incredibly kind of assertive and pushes back really hard, especially for her context. So, um, yeah, the, we're always bringing, it's like when people send us a text message and, you know, we'll always impose a tone of voice on that and um, we don't know, obviously, so we have to be really humble about the, the kind of tone that we hear um, in what is words on a page. Yeah. Specifically, you know, once it's been translated, three or four times or however, you know, mm. the levels of translation from the initial text as well. Mm. Like I, I find the same thing 
I think that I keep needing to remind myself and I, I see there's a little reminder in here of just like the, the different relationship between Jews and Samaritans and like, um, yeah, you know, like I'm even in my head, like I know they're meant to be enemies. Um, but like, I don't really know many of the complex dynamics between how, you know, the history of why they relate that way and, and, what is so out of place. And yet the fact that they're in the same physical place, like that must be a really interesting dynamic that, yeah, I just feel very naive to. And they have a shared history as well. Like she talks about Rachel and Leah and Jacob and um, the Messiah. So they have so much in common, but they're not talking to each other. Mm. Yeah, divided by a common God thing, which happens so often. Any other thoughts or things that stood out to you? Rod, maybe you could just um, help us along here. My understanding of Samaritans were that um, they were the Jews that got left behind when Nebuchadnezzar hauled most of the Jews off to Babylon and they kind of intermarried with some of the local uh, Arabs while the main lot were sort of in um, Nebuchadnezzar. And then when the Jews came back, uh, they were sort of seen as being um, uh, defiled by other races, and that's why that they got split. Is, it, is that roughly correct? The difference between Samaritans and Jews? Yeah. Um, sorry, got a lot of noise here, but um, yeah, I think that my understanding, and I could be wrong too, is that this is more the remnant of the Northern Kingdom that was taken. By the, invaded by the Assyrians and the Assyrians had more of a policy of interbreeding and trying to um, uh, conquer by um, making spreading people out and making them interbreed whereas um, the Jews when the Babylonians invaded were kind of taken wholesale into exile some were left and then they returned so they perceived themselves because of that to be more pure whereas those that had been the victims of the Assyrian Empire were tarnished by all of that um, interbreeding and their, I guess their religion was seen as um, compromised for the same reason. But, yeah, essentially what you're saying is, is right, that they, they were seen as, as kind of tarnished and um, not pure, and I guess in a, in a religion where purity, I mean, it's something we've talked about before, where purity of all sorts was valued so highly, they were seen as, as radically compromised. Um, just while you're thinking, if you've got anything else to share, um, one of the things that really struck me, and this is one of the reasons why I wanted to, to share this passage this morning, was um, the way it ends, um, that you've got the disciples coming back and being astonished by the fact that this conversation is even taking place. Uh, and um, while we might wonder about how John knows what Jesus and this woman said, given that John wasn't there, it was just a private conversation, and we might suspect that John's used this as an opportunity to sort of um, cr create a dialogue to make a point. Um, you do wonder whether the skeleton of this, ex of this event is, um, is the actual point in a way that, the disciples come back and find Jesus in a private conversation with a Samaritan woman uh, and that this is just breathtaking, that this is happening at all. And that 
um, that this woman, um, whatever the actual conversation that took place, this woman um, was uh, transformed by this experience and wanted to go home and tell everyone about it and what an incredible thing that is. Uh, and I, um, I feel like um, this thing that Jesus does in seeing people that, are, that don't feel seen and, and, and engaging with people that don't have a voice, um, that's what really struck me in this story. And the kind of the details of their exchange and the, the tone that Jesus, the kind of seemingly uh, kind of pushy tone that Jesus adopts. Um, as, I, as I saw the kind of this, this, the events of the story, that, that kind of tone receded for me and I was just more and more struck by the very fact that this interaction is, is happening rather than um, the details of the exchange. Um, so I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in a minute. Was there anything last, any last comments on the passage that people wanted to, to make? I am. Um, one of the things I'm more often curious about is um, the using of the term Messiah and just how like, um, yeah, we're talking about both, you know, Samaritans and Jews being different, but having the same shared history. And so when they're both, like when Jesus said, I, who am speaking to you, I'm the Messiah. And then she at the end says, could this be the Messiah? Just wondering, like, are they both on the same track about who they're talking about and what they're expecting of this person? Um, and yeah. And, and also like, what does Jesus mean when he says that? Like, does he know about what kind of Messiah he's going to be and what, and then her expectations of it. I find that really curious. Yeah, we need someone that's done their PhD on Samaritan messianic expectations, don't we? Anyone? <laughs> Has anyone done that? No. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it is. It's fascinating. To, fascinating to think if there were distinctions between, like, yeah, what what the Samaritans actually expected. Yeah. Thanks, Josh. Um. So yeah, it's been. It's been a crazy um, few days and um, watching this election unfold as, and preparing this talk and looking at this passage, all of these things in my, um, in my dream life have been kind of melding together. Um, and as, <clears throat> as I'm watching, watching the election, I um, have been thinking a lot about what Walter Brueggemann, um, uh, American biblical scholar, often likes to ask conservative and liberal audiences that he speaks to, and that is to focus as much as they can on where the suffering is, where the suffering is, um, and the related questions of who is, who is unseen in these situations that we experience and who has no voice. Um, and it's, it, it just struck me that this Samaritan woman is, especially with her kind of questionable marital status and the fact that she's collecting water in the middle of the day, which suggests that she's um, not allowed perhaps to go at the cooler parts of the day. And so is um, a, uh, an outcast in her community that um, she's the kind of person who is the suffering one, the voiceless one, the one who's unseen. And yet in this whole village, she is the one that Jesus, engages with um, and 
uh, it it just it struck me as um, as this you know fixation on Donald Trump was so much character the char- characteristic of of this time and understandably so um, it's so easy in in these historical moments to forget the people that are, uh, are suffering, the people that are voiceless, the people that are unseen, um, even those that are voting for Trump. <laughs> and mm. and so many of them were uh, voting against their best interests because they're being deceived, um, mocked mm. by progressives and despised. Um, and it just, yeah, it just struck me that it um, seen this way, it kind of adds a complexity and texture to, to these kinds of situations. Um, and these are the questions that we're looking at in this series. What, what kind of Jesus are we living? Um, and what does our understanding of who Jesus was and what Jesus did, how does that change the way we engage with um, these kinds of moments in history? Um, how does it change who we see and who we don't see in these situations? Um, so... Just briefly, a reminder of, of what we're doing in the series. <clears throat> um, we're moving into Advent, and um, this is a time of uh, looking forward to Jesus' birth and the hope of the incarnation. And so in this series, we're uh, trying to talk about how it is that Jesus can remain good news for us in, in the world that we find ourselves in. Um, in the first week of the series, we talked about how the gift of Jesus had been explained to us in the past, um, how, it, how we had been told that Jesus' uh, birth and life and death mattered, um, what Jesus came to do. And then in the, in the second week, we sort of talked about the two goals of the series. Um, one was to sort through our understandings of Jesus the understandings that we have inherited and work out what to do with them, which ones we maybe need to set aside, which ones we might need to add to our, to our view of who Jesus was and what Jesus did to, to help it to remain good news for us. Um, with the ultimate goal of continuing to have a relationship with Jesus, um, with the ultimate goal of continuing to follow Jesus, um, because our understandings of Jesus are meant to serve our relationship with Jesus and our, and our relationship with Jesus is bigger than those understandings. Uh, and the, the other purpose of the series is to look at some of the big questions and realities of our time and culture that make it hard to follow Jesus or see Jesus as good news, um, to acknowledge those questions and to explore ways in which Jesus might be good news despite these questions. Uh, things like, you know, climate change, as we mentioned, um, so for the next few weeks, we're going to um, focus on the first of these things, look at our understandings of Jesus, who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do and um, what we inherited and what we might add to that understanding or change to those understandings. And then in December, we'll maybe talk about um, questions and realities in our culture and time that, that also make it hard perhaps for us to see Jesus as good news. Um, So this week um, we're going to talk about an idea that uh, Veronique summed up um, in week one as uh, Jesus came because we were all rubbish. 
because of sin. And Jesus could stand in front of us so God could bear to look at us and talk to us. So those are pretty much, I was typing at the time, so those are pretty much these exact words. I'll read them again. Jesus came because we were all rubbish because of sin and Jesus could stand in front of us so God could bear to look at us and talk to us. And I think that was an understanding that a lot of us grew up with. Um, Jackie also talked a bit about this, saying um, that you know Jesus came as a sacrifice to help us come into God's presence and that the holiness of God was emphasised for her um, that kind of separated us from God. That meant God was kind of terrifying and unapproachable unless we somehow appeased God. Um, and Amy, Amy also talked about that. She talked about how when, when she was a kid, there was this kind of splitness between um, a view that she was terrible and God couldn't bear her unless she was covered over by Jesus. And then that, that narrative of Jesus coming and, and loving people and accepting them just as they are and these things being intention and not knowing um, or not even questioning that when she was young, only later. Um, and I certainly really relate to that kind of confusion and splitness that Amy describes. Um, Jesus as someone that came to love me, Jesus that you know, said, let the little children come to me. Um, but, but then also Jesus saving us from a God of wrath, um, a God of, of anger. Um, and the other, thing that, the other thing that we touched on with all of that is um, yeah, just the psychological effects, that, that splitness, the psychological effects, that having that um, very violent view of God or that view that, a very negative, incredibly negative view of, of humanity, the psychological effects of that. Um, I think f- for me, and, and again, it relates to the Samaritan woman, for me as um, a straight white male, growing up with that message, it was, it was sort of psychologically balanced by the fact that I was given status because of who I was. I was listened to because of who I was. Um, I was seen and I was given a voice because of who I was. And so um, that tension of being seen as depraved, as um, dead in my sins, as being kind of ugly and negative, that was, I guess, balanced by the way that I was treated and so that the psychological, I was kind of split, but the psychological damage was not as great. But I look at, um, at a lot of the... Other people in the community that I grew up with, people, uh, women and um, queer people and uh, people who had an experience of generally being unseen and unlistened to and unvalued in their communities. And when this narrative of total depravity and a negative view of humanity was laid on top of that, that the the effects were often quite um, devastating. which is the striking thing about the, the story of this woman, this Samaritan woman, that when we look at the words that Jesus is saying, when we look at their exchange, it does seem um, like we, it's easy to read it as Jesus having power over her or manipulating her a bit. And yet when you look at um, 
her response and you look at the, the response of the disciples to the fact that they're even talking, it feels like there's, there's this countercurrent of positive regard and this woman being seen and valued by Jesus um, that makes this story a bit confusing. But it, it, it made me think that um, so often a lot of us were able to, um, to hold on to this understanding of Jesus because we were loved in our communities and we were treated well and we were, were seen and valued. And so that, that enabled us to hold that tension, whereas for others of us, that just wasn't possible because not only were we told we were totally depraved and that God can only look at us because of Jesus' sacrifice for us, but we, we were also um, treated very poorly by our communities and unseen and unlistened to, and that created a very, very toxic and brutal combination. Um, I'm conscious of the fact that um, today is Intersex Day of Remembrance. Um, a couple of weeks ago was Intersex Awareness Day. Um, and it's just a day that really underlines the problem of invisibility and how it really creates a toxic mix when it's combined with um, theology that frames us all negatively. Um, does anyone have any... Uh, does, does that... Is that ringing and making sense to people? Is that um, any comments that people want to add to that or ways of nuancing what I've been saying? It's okay if not. I think sometimes it's, I don't know, I grew up in, uh, I guess, my church community. Can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah. Um, the church community that I grew up in where I was, like, super, super loving and, so was my um, like Christian upbringing, but it was almost so much so that it made it really hard to uh, hard to sort of come to any conclusions on my own without the threat of losing that love of people that I really cared about. It seemed like it was like in this insular bubble mm -hmm. that if you went outside of that, that that would just disappear. Mm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think that was, um, yeah, part of part of what was so difficult for a lot of us is, yeah, you feel like you've got this incredible love, but it, it's it's conditional on accepting this package of beliefs. And if you um, if you start to experience that as a form of tension, there's nowhere to to go. Yeah. Thanks, Ellen. And I was thinking about the bit where she says. Um, you know, like she felt heard by Jesus because she says, come and see the someone who told me everything I've ever done. And you're like, oh, I well, sort of worked, you know, said she'd had five husbands. <laughs> but, you know, the way she's, she's taken it is she's taken that as a positive thing. Like, oh, he's, 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 I'm not invisible. He's seen me he, and understand, you know, like she's, and, and then she equates that, therefore he must be the Messiah. Yeah. So it sort of turns into this positive interaction. She's seeing it, you know, reframing it in this positive way of I felt listened and seen by this man um, and therefore he must be the Messiah. And she sees him and she says, I see you're a prophet, like when he says you've had five husbands. So she's equating it with some divinity or some knowledge or knowing her in ways that other people maybe don't, mm. which I think is really interesting. Mm. 
Thanks, Mark. I'm conscious of the time, so I might just very quickly move on to a couple more, more things because um, <laughs> the point of today wasn't really to talk about all of that, um, but <laughs> to, um, to talk about an alternative to that vision of Jesus' work. Um, and so what I might do this morning is just sort of introduce that and people can think about it. It's not something new because it's stuff that we've looked at before, but introduce um, this alter, uh, other understanding of Jesus' um, incarnation uh, that um, for a lot of us in this community uh, and a lot of us have been introduced to it by people like Richard Raw has become very important to them in, I guess, reframing their understanding of the incarnation. And that is um, summed up by Richard Raw with this kind of plan A versus plan B vision of the incarnation. I don't know if you're familiar with that framing, but I'll explain it. Um, so Richard Raw would say that um, we need a vision of, of humanity that starts with Genesis 1 rather than Genesis 3. So it starts with original blessing rather than original sin. Um, in our first week, Daph, uh, Daphne was quoting um, St. Teresa of Avila, talking about um, there being nothing comparable to the magnificent beauty of a soul and its marvellous capacity, um, saying that our soul is a paradise where God finds God's delight. Um, and within the Franciscan tradition and also within the mystical tradition, there is this incredible sense, again, flowing from Genesis 1, that, um, that at our core we are um, this beautiful, blessed, beloved uh, creation of God and that that identity comes before everything else, before any notion of sin, before any notion, uh, any other notion, that that is, is primary. Um, and... Um, for those of us who were brought up with an image of human beings that was purely negative, all about lack and depravity and evil, um, where humanity is pure darkness and Jesus is pure light, um, this offers, I guess, an alternative that takes darkness seriously but doesn't see it as kind of fundamental or primary. Um, Richard Raw would see that kind of negative view as a, as a plan, plan B vision of history. Um, so... Um, God made this perfect thing and then we human beings ruined it. Um, and this was a surprise to God and then God is desperately trying to think of a plan B. Um, plan A was just create paradise and then it would be like that forever and then we ruined it. And so um, God is desperately trying to, to, to break into history to save us. Um, whereas for in the Franciscan tradition, um, in this plan A understanding of incarnation. Um, Jesus' coming was God's plan from the very beginning. Um, from the very beginning, um, everything was leading up to this, this coming of Jesus. Um, and in a way, you can see Genesis 1 rather than Genesis 1 is this original perfection that then we ruin and then God has to try to bring us back to that. Genesis 1 becomes a vision of the future, not the past. Um, Genesis 1 becomes the goal of this whole adventure of creation. Um, and Jesus is, is the climax of that. Um, so you see it as 
this ongoing conversation between God and humanity moving slowly since God is non-coercive, um, slowly to a place of deeper and deeper understanding, deeper and deeper relationship, deeper and deeper aligning of God's desire with ours until this climaxes in the intimacy and relationship and pure alignment with God's desire that we see in Jesus. Um, a really, uh, this might sound quite nebulous, so a really concrete way of, um, of seeing this is in um, the, uh, the birth of Jesus. Um, Thomas J. Ord, uh, who's a, um, an American theologian, um, I was listening to him recently talking about the ancient understanding of conception. So uh, in, at, around Jesus' time in the ancient world, when a baby was conceived, the understanding was that basically the man was entirely responsible for that baby. So the man would, would plant a baby seed inside the woman and then the baby would grow. So the woman was pure, pure host. Yeah? The woman contributed nothing aside from her womb as a place for the baby to grow. Um, and so if you see, you see Mary's conception of Jesus in that way, you see it as like this divine invasion where um, humanity is, Mary is purely the host for this divine seed that grows inside her. Um, so that kind of stands for that plan B model where we are, we are dead, we are passive and God is, is active and God is doing um, everything. Um, whereas for us, we know that that's not how conception works. It's an act of co-creation. Mary contributed as much as God to the genetic makeup of, of Jesus. Um, to see the incarnation as a divine human co-creation, not a divine work that, that happens in spite of us, is a, is a profoundly different way of viewing incarnation and gives so much more dignity to, um, to humanity and to the human, human contribution. Um, Jesus representing more human potential, the place where we are all headed rather than an, some alien visitor who throws our failure and depravity into, into relief. Um, so the dignity that this gives to us is so great. Um, and I think this is um, one way that Jesus' incarnation can, can, become, can really become good news. It certainly radically changed the way I live my faith and have found in this vision a kind of sense of liberation and compassion that I see Jesus living and showing to others. Um, and the, the theology that I grew up with just didn't do that for me. Um, when I think back to my late teens and 20s, I see a person that was obsessed over sexual sin, that was full of unacknowledged envy that turned into judgmentalism, who was blind to systemic sin and how complicit I was in it, um, someone who was obsessed with being right rather than compassionate, and someone who was deeply, had a deeply fearful need to stay on the right side of powerful men rather than stand alongside the disempowered and the suffering. Um, and I'm not saying necessarily that that theology inevitably creates that, but that's what it created for me. And I needed something else to step into a sense of liberation and compassion. And that's what um, that, I guess, plan A 
vision of the incarnation did for me.